0: John R. Mutchler wrote on May eighteenth, 18 excuse me, nineteen eighty is one of those dates that I will always remember where I was and what I was doing. That was the day Mount Saint Helens erupted. I just started my first year at Western Washington University and recall standing outside the Performing Arts Center looking south towards the eerie and colorful red skies emblazoned by the sun's reflection upon tons of airborne volcanic ash. Many students heard the morning explosion some 200 miles away. My wife heard the blast standing outside the house and thought something large had fallen and crashed inside the house. The explosion, like a nuclear bomb, was heard as far as 600 miles away. It killed 57 people. Can you imagine being right next to it, standing near as many did? A number of men and women were rescued within a few miles of the mountain, and they testified to this most amazing thing. They did not hear the explosion. Some a mile or two away saw the darkened sky and had no idea what had happened. How could that be? They were in what's called a zone, of silence scientists explain that the incredible upward thrust of the exploding mountain also sent the sound of the event upwards into the atmosphere where it bounced back to earth several times, but in intervals outward and away from ground zero. So although people like old Mr. Truman was right there next to the disaster, on Spirit Lake Shore, in the volcano's shadow, he did not hear the eruption. Just imagine being so close to something, something so great, something so life-changing, and not even recognizing it. That reminds us of a quote from Jesus as he quoted the prophet Isaiah. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. It was possible to stand right in front of Jesus and yet not really hear his words. To be right there and not recognize what was going on. The Jews had every conceivable Possible spiritual advantage. Even with Jesus standing right there in front of them, though seeing, though hearing, they didn't see, and they didn't hear, and they didn't understand. Romans 10:18 says, But I ask, have they, Israel, not heard? Indeed they have. They have heard the message, but though hearing, they didn't hear. Instead, how did they respond? It says later in verse 21, but it visually says, all day long I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Sad and true to be so close to something so monumental and yet miss it. See, Paul's great longing, his great heart's desire as Romans 10:1 tells us is for the salvation of his kinsmen for his Jews how could they be so close and not here what's the reason they were not saved their persistent unbelief the responsibility lies with them for their rejection of the gospel for their rejection of their Messiah. All the teaching, all the law, all the spiritual heritage, Jesus himself coming to them, and still they persist in their unbelief. Remind us again of the words of our Lord in Luke chapter 13, verse 34, where he said, Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones all those who are sent to it How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. But you were not willing. Folks, that's still happening today. Not just with the Jewish people, but everywhere. People who hear the gospel message and yet don't hear People who see Christ at work and yet don't see Christ at work. People who know the Bible and yet don't understand. How often has Jesus offered them salvation and yet they were not willing? Could that be us? Have you heard? Jesus' heart was rend for his people. Paul's heart was rent for his kinsmen. And we'll see in our passage today, Paul explains why the Jews have rejected Christ. I've outlined Romans 10 like this. First is their choice in Romans 10, 1 through 4. Then their opportunity in Romans 10, 5 through 17. And then their response in Romans 10, 18 to 21. But today, we're only going to get to that first part, to the choice. So please Open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 10 and follow along as I read these first four verses. Our scripture says to us today, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, the Jews, is that they may be saved, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. But not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they do not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Father, now we've gathered around your word to humble ourselves to the truth of your word. And we pray, Holy Spirit, the one who who gave us this word, who provided it for us and errant. Lord, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would use it to challenge us, to change us today, to be more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, all of chapter 10 stems off of this one verse, verse 1, brothers. My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. This opening verse reflects us back to the opening of chapter 9. Paul wants us to remember uh, the the feelings that he had there in chapter 9 as we start chapter 10. He wants us to remember the great sorrow and the unceasing anguish in his heart for his people, his kinsmen had rejected their Messiah. He saw it, he felt it, his heart was broke. His great desire and his ardent prayer to God was for them to be saved. For you see, Paul was once just like them, rejecting Christ, fervent for his traditions, hearing but not hearing, seeing but not seeing. His prayer was for them, for their salvation. As God opened his eyes to the truth on that road to Damascus, he prayed to God that he would open the eyes of his people, open their ears, open their heart to his salvation. Beloved, if there's one thing that we should all be doing in evangelism, it is praying to God for the salvation of the lost. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Our great response is to pray, to pray for the lost and to pray for them by name. Write it out. Write out the names. Pray for them by names. Pray for God to open a door for the gospel. Pray for God to open their heart. Pray for God to open our mouths to speak of Christ. See, it wasn't just Paul's desire of, for his lost kinsmen to be saved. It wasn't just some feeling that he had. It was his ardent prayer to God for their salvation. So now as we start here in chapter 10, Paul tells us why his kinsmen aren't saved. It was their choice So, as Paul starts to tell us why they have not turned to faith in Christ, he first says in verse 2 that he could bear witness about the Jews that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. The problem wasn't their enthusiasm, the problem wasn't their feelings or their passions. No, they had constantly demonstrated their zeal for God by their legalistic conformity to the Old Testament law. And from their point of view, they demonstrated their zeal for God by the persecution of anyone who would teach anything that disagreed with their view of God. Which, of course, included the early church and the first Christians. That's exactly how Paul describes himself before he came to Christ He says of himself in Philippians 3, If anyone else has any reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to law a Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law blameless. Paul, before his conversion to Christ... Full of all this zeal for God. The problem isn't the zeal. They are sincere. But is sincerity enough? Is sincerity enough? See, today it's common to hear people say you can believe whatever you want as long as you are sincere. Right? Be a Christian. Be a Buddhist, be a Mormon, be a Jedi, you know, be a, be a naturalist, be a pantheist. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you are sincere. The only gauge of truth is your personal feelings. You have your truth and I have my truth and, and our opinions are the sole best arbiter of what is true. Is that correct? Is that how truth works. No. Sincerity and reality are not the same things. Your feelings or your take are not the best avenue to truth. There isn't your truth and my truth. There is just the truth. Folks, this is so important to understand, especially right now in our culture with all the stuff in the news, with all the politics of our day, with all the misinformations and distortions, truth is lost amidst the zeal. Truth is manipulated amidst the zeal. Truth is ignored amidst the zeal. Zeal is highlighted. Sincerity is celebrated. And truth is disregarded. Zeal, sincerity, is not the arbiter of truth. Truth stands outside of our feelings. Truth stands outside of our our opinions. Truth is based on what is actually real. Truth is not decided by spiritual leaders or the church. Truth is not decided by political leaders, professors, or even parents. See, truth stands outside of us. It is not dependent upon us. Paul said they had a great zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. You can be sincere and be sincerely wrong. Now, suppose you're taking that trip of a lifetime you've been saving for, you've been dreaming about, you're been planning for to go to Europe or or to go to Asia or to go to Australia. The pilot comes on over the speakers and says, I really love flying. It's one of my greatest joys. Don't you wish your pilot would say things? That that would give you such confidence in your pilot. And then he says, well, I I especially love flying gliders. You know, flying with no engine, just, just you and, and the outside and just being pushed along by the wind. I, I love that so much that now that we've reached cruising altitude with the wind behind us, I'm just going to turn off the engines and we're just going to glide over the ocean. I sincerely believe everything is going to be just fine. Sincerity without knowledge can be fatally wrong zeal without knowledge is just fanaticism the best test of ideas is not sincerity but the truth it's not the sincerity of one's faith that matters it's the object of one's faith that matters it's not about how sincere you are It's not about how much faith you have, but about how strong and true is the one to whom you have put your faith in. That's exactly Paul's point here in the opening of chapter 10. Their zeal was sincere, but it was wrong. And he lists now for us three reasons. First, as we've already been talking about there at the end of verse 2, for I bear them witness that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. It's quite a startling thing to say, right? I mean, the Jews with so much knowledge about God. I mean, do you know who you're saying doesn't have knowledge here, Paul? I mean, these people memorize chunks, huge chunks of the Old Testament in synagogue school for the boys. All the work of knowing God's word and their passion for the law. With all that they knew about God, yet Paul says their zeal for God was not according to knowledge. What does that mean? I mean they definitely had a, had knew an awful lot about God. But what did they lack? What they lacked was discerning knowledge. What they lacked was a desire for the truth. They knew what they knew, but they failed to evaluate their knowledge by the truth. They were fanatic for zeal, but not fanatic for the truth. Sincerity and reality are not the same things. There is truth, real, absolute, objective truth. You see, the challenge for us, for all people, is to be sincere about the truth. So don't evaluate your beliefs on the basis of your sincerity, but on the basis of their concurrence with the truth, on their agreement to the truth. Pilate is famously quoted as saying to Jesus in John 18, 38, what is truth? It's a great question. It's a great question for us. It's a great question for our day. It's a question that must be answered. What is truth? If we're supposed to evaluate our beliefs, our feelings and our opinions against the truth, what is the truth? If it's not sincerity, if there is right or wrong, if truth stands outside of us, what's the truth? I submit to you two things. First, God's word is the truth. John 17:17 17, 17 says, "Your word is truth." Psalm 119:160 says, "The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever." 2 Timothy 2:15 2, calls the Bible the word of truth, and we could go on and on and on with examples. Next, who is the truth? Jesus is the truth. John 14:6 Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And John 1.14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 1 John 5.20 calls Jesus, Him who is true. The Word of God is truth. Jesus Is the truth. Jesus told the woman at the well that God is to be worshiped in spirit and in truth. See, the challenge for us, the challenge for all people, is to evaluate our sincerely held beliefs by God's word, by Jesus, who he is and what he has done. And then, as we do the evaluation, we are to change our beliefs to match the truth. See, one of the saddest realities is to interact with people who have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, not aligned with the truth. One said the problem with their zeal for God was that it was based on bad theology. Because only a proper understanding of God will lead to an appropriate zeal for God. Folks, I can't overstate how important this is. A true Christian thinks. A true Christian evaluates. A true Christian measures their belief, their world, their attitudes, their thoughts, according to the truth. Truth that stands outside of us. Truth that accords with reality. Truth of God's word and his son. Could it be today that that you would acknowledge within yourself that you have a zeal for God, but not according to the truth? Are your beliefs from what you think? Are they from what God's word teaches? It doesn't matter one lick if that pilot sincerely believed that that plane could fly without the engines. What matters is the truth. Beloved, there is truth. There is spiritual, absolute truth. And it's found in God's word. And it's found in Christ alone. Today, evaluate your your sincerely held beliefs. Do they line up with what's real? The truth? The second reason uh, they were sincerely wrong is stated in verse Uh, At the beginning there, of verse 3, where it says that they were ignorant of the righteousness of God. Paul points out here one of the very specific reasons, the very specific things in which they lack knowledge. They lack knowledge in the righteousness of God. They were ignorant. They were badly informed about the righteousness of God. Again, another quite astonishing thing to say about the Israelites, about the Jewish people being ignorant Of the righteousness of God? How could that be? Well, it's true in two ways. One is is that they were ignorant of God's righteous character. They were ignorant of just how righteous God really is. One wrote, in light of having received the full revelation of the Old Testament, it is shocking to think that the Jews would underestimate God's holiness and righteous perfection. But they had brought God's holiness and purity down to their own sinful level. Their basic spiritual moral flaw was in thinking that God was somehow less holy and more tolerant of sin than he had clearly revealed himself to be. This is an ignorance that's not only a struggle with the Jews then, but that is pervasive today. Beloved, our God is a righteous God. God's righteousness means that he only does what is right. Always, in every situation, in every circumstance, his every decision, his every action, his every motive, his every thought is right. Righteousness is God's holiness in action. So it naturally follows that with God's righteousness comes his right evaluation of unrighteousness. God's perfect righteousness is the very evaluative standard for which righteousness really is. We only know what righteousness is by its conformity to God's righteousness. And we only know what unrighteousness is by its non-conformity to God's righteousness. Thus, it's God's absolute righteousness that leads us to properly understand him. And leads him to properly execute his justice. see justice is god 's righteousness in action. Paul is telling the Jews the number one area of ignorance is that they don't understand the absolute righteousness of God by not knowing his total righteousness they 've downplayed both God's holiness and his justice. Oh, they say, you know God's not totally righteous. I mean I mean sometimes he just turns a blind eye to To my sins, I mean, he's always just for sure, except sometimes, right? He he just lets me slide by sometimes, you know. He's pretty holy, I mean, as far as holiness goes, he's pretty holy. But sometimes he's okay with me, you know, just doing whatever makes me feel the best. Isn't that not the pervasive thoughts of today in our world? And then unfortunately, sometimes even within us, within the church. The Jews had all this truth of the Old Testament scriptures, teaching them over and over again about God's total righteousness, yet they still thought somehow that God would just look at their zeal and not at their actions and not at their thoughts. One wrote, the Jews of Paul day were not much different than most people of any day, including our own. Because men think God is less holy than he is and they they are more holy than they are, they believe they can achieve acceptance with God. They measure both God and themselves by human standards of right and wrong and are deceived in both regards. Folks, it is to our everlasting peril to devoid God of his total righteousness, to be ignorant, of his righteousness, leads us to believe in our own self-righteousness and thus to forget about God's complete justice. And to forget about God's justice then is to think that somehow we can actually earn our own salvation. It is the reality of God's total righteousness that is supposed to expose within us the reality of our total unrighteousness. God alone is ultimate in his righteousness. And we do well to not be ignorant of that fact. That leads to the second way that they were ignorant of the righteousness of God. They were ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God. Because they did not properly see God's total righteousness, they did not properly see their total unrighteousness, and thus they thought they could earn by their own merit a right standing before God. They thought they could achieve a righteousness of their own, on their own. And thus give themselves a right standing with God. Beloved, no one could do that. No one has ever been able to do that. They thought they didn't need God's righteousness. Hey, I can do this on my own. Thank you very much. Romans 9.32 says, They pursued righteousness as if it was based on works. As if they could accomplish it themselves. Beloved, this is fundamental to understanding God and to understanding ourselves. This is fundamental to faith and salvation. God alone is righteous. We are unrighteous. We cannot earn a right standing with God. For God's total righteousness means that he must and will judge all sin. And since we all sin, since we're all unrighteous, We will all be judged for having fallen short of the glory of God, falling short of the righteousness of our God. Romans 3, 9 tells us, quoting from the Old Testament, Psalm 14, none is righteous, no, not one. See, their prideful self-righteousness blinded them to the fact that what they needed was a righteousness from God, a righteousness not their own, a righteousness given to them by faith. So how do we go from unrighteousness to accepted by God? We received Christ's righteousness by faith. Christ's righteousness is credited to us, and our unrighteousness is credited to him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this so beautifully, so clearly. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of god christ's righteousness credited our lives is called imputed righteousness christ's imputed righteousness is applied to us in two ways first our sin is imputed or credited to christ we're the offending party right he's the guiltless party he perfectly kept the law We, sinfully, impossibly, could never keep it. Yet on the cross, God poured his wrath out on Christ. Why? Because our sins were imputed to Christ. Christ took our sins upon him. Our great debt was paid from his account. Christ paid the horrific penalty... As the cup of God's wrath was poured out on him, he who knew no sin became sin for us, taking our sin. The second application of imputation is when Christ's righteousness is imputed or credited to us. He not only took the debt of our sin, he gives us the credit of his righteousness Jesus kept the law perfectly, perfect obedience. We could never do it perfectly and completely righteous. And in salvation, God credits to us his righteousness. We stand before God clothed in Christ's righteousness. We become the righteousness of God. One wrote, Thus the doctrine of imputation, the crediting of our sin to him... And if his obedience to us is essential to the gospel, it shows us why the gospel is such good news. Because Christ has done it all. He has met our creator's standard of perfection for us. So we need not fear the Lord's wrath if we are in Christ, by faith alone, the doctrine of imputation can lead us only to the praise of the glory and grace of God. The doctrine of imputation tells us that salvation truly is of him and of him alone. So when God sees us, think of this now. When God sees us, what does he see? His son. He sees his son's Righteousness covering our sins. His righteousness credited to us as righteousness. As the hymn says, no merit of my own his anger to suppress. My only hope is found in Jesus' righteousness. Oh, their, ir- their ignorance of, of just how totally righteous God really is and their ignorance that they needed a righteousness that was not their own led them next to this third way that they did not choose Christ. At the end of verse 3 it says they were seeking to establish their own righteousness and refused to submit to God's righteousness. That's what it leads to. If you think you can earn your own salvation, if you think you can establish your own righteousness, you know what that means you're doing? That means you're refusing God's righteousness. They outright rejected God's righteousness in favor of their own. It's no longer ignorance. This is insubordination. This is rebellion. It's not just that they didn't know. Now they're willfully choosing not to submit to God to seek their own way. One wrote, This is an ignorance. There is an ignorance that comes from a lack of opportunity. But Israel had many opportunities to be saved. In their case, it was an ignorance that stemmed from willful, stubborn resistance to the truth. They would not submit to God. They were proud of their own good works, their religious self-righteousness and would not admit their sin and trust the Savior. Their gross underestimating of God's righteousness and of their own unrighteousness led directly to them creating this whole false system of legalistic self-righteousness. They turned God into a list of do's and don'ts. They turned God into into a man-made religion. And folks, God will have none of that. Paul knows all about this. Paul knows all about this because this was him. He was caught up in all of this. Listen to the rest of his testimony that I began there at Philippians chapter 3. He says of himself, if anyone else thinks he has reason to be confident in the flesh, I, have, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal persecuted of the church, as to righteousness under the law blameless. I've earned it. I did it. There's the list and I followed it. But... The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Folks, if Christ is to be found in us, there can be no self-righteousness in us. There's no earning it on your own. True righteousness only comes through faith in Christ. His righteousness, righteousness from God that depends on faith. One commentator wrote, Everything about the Jewish religion pointed to the coming of the Messiah. The sacrifices, the priesthood, the temple services, the the religious festivals, the covenants. Their law told them that they were sinners in need of a savior. But instead of letting the law bring them to Christ, they worshiped their law and rejected their savior. The law was a signpost to point the way. It could, but it could never take them to their destination. The law could not give them righteousness. The law only relieves the sinner to the Savior, who alone can give righteousness. You see, folks, verse 4. Verse 4 is an awesome verse. Verse 4 tells us about our Savior. Verse 4 tells us something amazing that our Savior has done for us. Christ is the end of the law of righteousness to everyone who believes. That is an amazing verse. Paul put the word end at the beginning of that sentence. In Greek, you can mess up the word order. You can take a word out of the word order, put it first in the sentence on purpose, to emphasize it. Paul is emphasizing end. He's emphasizing the complete termination of the law of righteousness. Christ is the end of the law of righteousness because he is the fulfillment of the law. He alone could and he alone perfectly did fulfill all of the requirements of the law. Jesus is the end of the law of righteousness because he fulfilled it. But I think here the focus is different than that. I think here, folks, the focus is that Jesus is the end Of the pursuit of the law of righteousness. Jesus is the end of the pursuit of earn it yourself righteousness. That's what this context is all about. Do you see it? For believers, for us, the vain pursuit of self-righteousness is over. The end has come. Christ has put an end to it. We no longer have to pursue and earn it on your own righteousness. It can't be done anyway. Christ has put an end to it. He has saved us. He's put an end to our works. Saved us by his works. What's left for us to do? Believe. Paul is going to go into great detail about that in this next paragraph of this letter in chapter 10. Read it. Read chapter 10. One wrote, Paul is saying that belief in Christ Jesus as Savior and Lord brings to an end the sinner's futile quest for righteousness through his own imperfect attempts to fulfill the law. I found this other quote I thought was great. Christ is the end of the law. He writes the end to the sorry spectacle of man's attempt to achieve life through the works of the law. In our life, At the time of our salvation, think about this. Jesus wrote the end to our story when it comes to righteousness and self-righteousness. For to his righteousness alone. Anyone else here ready to rejoice with me that Christ has put an end to the pursuit of law? Earn it your own righteousness? No religious hoops to jump to. You know, no grand list of do's and don'ts. No perfunctory religious actions to perform. Just Christ. He's all. That's all. His grace, His love, His righteousness. Just Christ. That's all we could ever need. Or want. So today evaluate. Do your sincerely held beliefs come from God's word, the truth? Today evaluate. Is your Christian life following a list? Is it your own works and your own strength doomed to fail? Or is your Christian life following a Savior, Jesus Christ? One is religion. The other is life. Joy. Peace. Just Jesus. That's all we could ever want or need. Let's pray. Father, as it said there in the end of Romans 9... What the Jews stumbled over was the stumbling stone. Jesus Christ. They stumbled over Christ. Oh, they chose rebellion. They chose to to not understand the truth. They chose to be ignorant in their way. But what they chose was to reject their Messiah, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Perhaps today you'd be great at some religious debates or you're good at following rules. But what about the stumbling stone in your life right now? Have you stumbled over Christ? Or has Christ become the rock of your salvation? Lord, help us to understand the difference in our own lives Spirit, convict us. Give us wisdom. Help us see what's really true in our own lives, in our own hearts, and then to respond and to submit humbly our thoughts to your truth. Lord, help us. Change us today to trust Jesus, to trust him alone. In Jesus' name, amen.